The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, 
knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity to share with you uh, from this important uh, passage. It is a, it's really a disaster story that we have in front of us and uh, a disaster of monstrous proportion. Nowadays, we, we have close-ups, don't we, all the time of, of, um, of disaster. And most recently, of course, the heart-rending scenes that we've seen from Turkey and Syria. And sometimes these are, are, are also infuriating in, in some ways to see, aren't they? they? They create an anger in us that some of this has been allowed to happen through uh, human uh, indolence. And I, I have to be careful here. I don't wish in any way to diminish the tragedy of what we've, what we've seen on our TV screens and through social media night after night. But this story that we come to in Genesis 3 rivals, or perhaps even better surpasses in significance, the worst of all disasters that could happen in this world. That when we come to this passage, we're facing something that transcends all the human disasters that you can just look on Google. You'll see them all listed there. Because what this passage is declaring to us is a story that triggers calamity. And its ramifications are for every human being, every one of us, for all of human history. That's pretty significant, isn't it? Because at one and the same time, Adam and Eve, as human beings, are the pinnacle of God's creation, made in the image of God, and yet at the same time, they're the biggest problem in creation because they have the free will to actually express human rebellion towards God. And they open the door to human rebellion. Sin infiltrates a perfect world. And like a virus, it begins to operate and bring ruin to the perfection that God has, has made. And what is being called into question is God's love and authority. Because Adam and Eve, in asserting their independence, it results from the questioning of whether God is good and whether he has authority. And letting sin in shatters relationships. Thankfully, of course, as we were hearing, that's not the end of the story. But wait a minute. You may, you may want to stop here and say, but this is about 
a story of two people and a talking snake. How, how, can, how come that's so significant for us now and for the whole of the world? I think we have to remember that actions of even one person or a small group of people can have massive consequences, can't it? Let me take you back to March the 24th, 1989. Not because it was the day of my 34th birthday, but I want to take you rather to this, uh, this ship, the Exxon Valdez, which is sailing on March the 24th at the evening of March 24th through Prince William Sound in, in Alaska. And as it carries on its voyage, it becomes the middle of the night and... Uh, the captain is in his bunk, sleeping. It was suggested afterwards that he may have been sleeping off a hangover. But anyway, he's sleeping. And the third mate, Gregory Cousins, is in charge of the ship. He's been on the bridge of the ship for six hours. And it's time for a break. But his replacement, the second mate, is sleeping and he doesn't want to disturb him. So he just goes on manfully. But not only does he go on manfully, he goes on to a reef. And spills nine million, something like nine million gallons of oil. Thankfully, no human being was killed, but the environmental impact was huge. 25,000, 250,000 seabirds at least 2,800 sea otters, 300 harbour seals, 247 bald eagles, 22 orcas, and an identified number of other fish, salmon and herring and so on. And that's just the starting point, isn't it? Because the clear-up cost an enormous amount of money. And the inquiry that uh, was made into it found that the, the third mate failed to properly manoeuvre the vessel, possibly due to fatigue or excessive workload. One person, also the radar wasn't working properly, one person, huge damage. One or two people, and we know this, don't we, can have massive impact on the world. It's Paul, the Apostle Paul who says this, Sin entered the world through one man. He says in Romans 5.12, And death through sin. Many died by the trespass of one person. And so we, we need to begin to grasp the awfulness of this story. Human beings have an incredible ability to spoil good things. Why is it that there's sometimes a, a lack of gratitude against the, the, the generosity that, that, that comes to people? We've actually built church halls in our, uh, in our church thanks to the ingratitude of two nephews who didn't write to thank their aunt when she gave them a substantial Christmas present. She wrote them out the will and the church benefited. Why, why is it that human beings often respond to goodness? Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect in every way. Compassionate, loving, gracious, kind, humble. 
And yet, what kind of reaction does he get from some? Hatred. He says to his disciples that if you follow me, actually the world will will hate you. How human beings have this incredible ability to spoil even the good things in life. God has planted a beautiful garden. It's a a garden which you you thought last week, I'm sure, in chapter 2, verse 9, that is not only beautiful to look at, there's actually tasty things to eat. There's good company because Adam and Eve are there together in this fertile spot, the garden of goodness, we might call it. And then out of nowhere, suddenly this mysterious snake appears. The passage really doesn't tell us much about the snake, except really to imply that he's one of God's creatures. The book of Revelation in chapter 12, verse 9, will, will give us the hint when it talks about the ancient snake called the devil. Someone who leads the world astray. Perhaps suggesting to us that this is, this is satanic. We would accept that, wouldn't we? The implications of what this snake does. And the snake speaks to the woman. You have to ask yourself, where's Adam in all this? Where, where, where is he when the snake's speaking to the woman? Can't be that far away. Well, maybe he's doing some weeding. Of, no, of course, there weren't any weeds. But So the, the snake begins to speak to the woman. Will they be led astray? Will she be led astray? Well, first of all, of course, as many folks have pointed out, and you will know, they, the first thing the snake does is to call God's word into question. Did God really say? Did God really say you've not to eat any of the, the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He expands what, what, uh, what God had said. And Eve stands up to him initially and points out that God is not as restrictive as the snake suggests. No, God didn't say we couldn't eat any of, from any of the trees in the garden. He spoke about one particular tree that we weren't even to touch. So, Actually, Eve helps us here because she stands up to this, the snake and that temptation to paint God as narrowing down life, as hindering our growth and fulfillment, that somehow God is this niggardly kind of character who will try to spoil life. But Eve fights that idea that somehow God is mean and constricting. There's so much that God wants these people and us to enjoy. I I love the the expression where it says that God makes the ocean teem with fish. You know, it's not just the odd tadpole here and, you know, goldfish there. It's teeming with fish. It's that kind of abundance that God is providing for these people. He wants to nourish them. We've got to believe that God knows what life in all its fullness is like. That God actually wants to nourish us. He wants us to flourish. He wants Adam and Eve to flourish as human beings. He wants us to flourish. Like any good parent, he will put restrictions, impose restrictions that are going to stop us 
things that may stop us flourishing. It's like an athlete. Think of um, think of Sir Chris Hoy or a gold medal contender. Chris Hoy as an athlete, he just didn't eat what he wanted. He didn't just drink whatever he liked at any point in his life. No, these athletes will get to bed early. They'll stick to their training regime. They'll restrict themselves for something better. Restrictions are imposed so that they can flourish in their sport. So that God is not restricting in the boundaries that he puts there. Rather, their boundaries to stop us from entering into areas where we will cease to flourish as human beings, where we just won't be fulfilled. Let me repeat, God wants you to flourish. And then, of course, having raised that question in Eve's mind, the the snake then goes on to flat out contradict God's word. You will certainly not die if you eat from that tree. God is, uh, the snake is saying, God has imposed this restriction because he he doesn't want you to be like him. You'll you'll then know good and evil. You'll then be on on a par with him. He doesn't want that. And on the face of it, there's an argument there, isn't there? It sounds right. Surely God doesn't want to withhold knowledge from us, does he? They'll know good and evil. Well, surely... Surely that's a good thing, that that we also are entering into knowing good and evil. Knowledge is power, isn't it? And that's why in dictatorial states, they'll shut down the internet, or they'll produce fake news, they'll limit what you can access in terms of news in, in, in your society, because knowledge is power. So is God just a kind of restrictive dictator? who doesn't want you to have knowledge because then you don't know what you do with it. Well, it's not quite like that, is it? God is not keeping something from us. Knowing good and evil here means humans determining what is good and evil, as opposed to God. No longer is God the authority. Authority transfers from God to Adam and Eve, and they then know how to assess good and evil. And God knows what will happen when human beings decide what is good and evil. They'll think it's okay to allow anger to dictate our actions. It's okay to seek revenge. It's okay to lie and deceive to get you out of trouble. And all of these things you'll come to next week in the story of Cain and Abel. Check it out. All of these things when human beings decide what good and evil is will happen. I don't know if you've come across or read the book Dominion by Tom Holland. If you've got a few days to spare, it's 800 pages, but it's well well worth it. You may want to wait till you're retired to, to read it. And really the, the argument of Tom Holland's book Dominion is that the things that we accept in our society, equality, justice, fairness, compassion, humility all really derive from the underlying Judeo-Christian base that we have in our society. 
We take them for granted. And we imagine that it's secular thinking that has introduced these, whereas, in fact, its argument is right throughout history. The things that have brought equality, justice, fairness, have been biblical values. And if you look at societies where these biblical values are ignored, then and when human beings decide what is good and what is right, it produces a very different society. You could check out uh, Tom Holland's argument there, 800 pages summarized in a sentence. So, from correcting the snake, Eve Eve is now taken in. She looks and she longs for something that will put her in control. Having control is so enticing, isn't it? We'll, we, most of us like to, to have control of things. Uh, I remember a thing that came to me once. I thought, you know, people complain about change. They get all upset about change. I, I don't seem to get worried about change. I'm quite happy with change. But then I realized that I'm happy with change when I'm actually dictating the change, when I'm in control of the change. None of us like to be have things out of our hands. So she, she wants that control. And so she takes the fruit and then she hands it to Adam. And he meekly follows Adam, who was with her, verse 6 says. Was he there all the time? Was he just beside her? Quietly standing back, not interfering. I'm reading into the passage, I know. But what on earth was Adam doing and thinking? Because it's interesting that when God comes to actually speak to the snake and to the woman and to Adam in chapter 3, verse 17, the words of blame that are directed at Adam are really saying, you listened to your wife, you listened to Eve. And he was culpable because of who he listened to. Eve listened to the the snake. Adam listened to Eve. And much of this story is about the voice that we listen to. They took their cue from a creature rather than the creator. And really the question I think that arises partly for us from this passage is who are we listening to? Now, of course, there's an increased challenge for us because it's not just one source that we have to listen to. We have surround sound, don't we? We are surrounded and bombarded by messages from all kinds of directions. Voices coming at us. Who are you listening to? Because that will ultimately dictate how you think. Or maybe for some it's uh, still like this. How you mold your thinking, how your whole mindset, and, and boy, has our mindset changed over the years and it's changing all the time, isn't it? Largely influenced by the voices, the dominant voices that we hear. 
Will you listen to the God who speaks life or to the voices that lead to death? Where are we going to access the truth that is going to set us free? Listening is a big a big issue risen in the whole of Scripture. It's Jesus' sheep who hear his voice. It's Jesus who constantly say, if you have ears to hear, it's God who calls people. And discerning his voice and where we access our information and how we critique what we hear according to his word is going to determine whether we are in life or death. Let me tell you just briefly as we try to draw this to a, a close. I was at a conference just yesterday. We were hearing from four women. Women who are committed to bring the gospel to sex workers. And people trafficked for sex. Three of them had themselves been involved in multiple abuse relationships, drug addiction, criminal activity, and at least one in prostitution. It was, it was horrible and painful to listen to their experiences. And, and they sanitized the way they told their stories. It's at the extreme, but it underscored to me the destructiveness of sin. And the destructiveness of broken relationships that happens in this story. Sin, when it breaks into the world, is nasty. It's horrific. It's nauseating. And the effect on the garden of goodness is immediate. Shame and fear overthrow openness and trust. Adam and Eve suddenly feel shameful at their nakedness and fear that they will speak to God and it overthrows the openness and trust of the relationship in which they'd had with God previously I remember the first night that we had a foster child in our house and everything was going well with that young boy until we came to bath time and the wee boy suddenly lost it he was screaming and weeping Taking off his clothes for a bath left him feeling exposed and vulnerable. And the man and woman suddenly feel that sense of exposure and vulnerability. And they seek cover. Unable to feel ease in God's presence. They want to hide. And that's what sin does. It overthrows that sense of openness, that trusting relationship that God wants to have, that nourishing relationship, that flourishing relationship that God wants to have with us. Do you want to hide from God, hide the things that are on your heart? He wants you to hear, he wants to hear them. He wants you to bring them out into the open with him. And hostility and pain overthrow peace and harmony. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 are really lots about order. They're 
the, 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 how God puts things in, in, in an ordered way within, within the globe, within the world. And now relationships in which there should have been peace and harmony have hostility and pain. The snake to the woman. The woman and the man are going to be in tension in relationship. The man and the soil. And his work is going to be by the sweat of his brow. The, the relationships are all shattered. And they become destructive. Oh, death may not have happened immediately. Although it would happen. But now there was the mark of death upon these relationships. And this is the cause of deep sadness and possibly even despair, isn't it? And the deepest sadness comes in the exclusion of Adam and Eve from the garden of goodness. They're alienated from God, banished from the garden with a bouncer to stop re-entry. As these women yesterday told us about the trauma of being controlled by men, abused, raped, beaten, in addiction to drugs, the main thing that came through was that they wanted to tell us what Jesus had done in their lives. They wanted to praise the Lord Jesus for his love and grace. God wants them, wanted them to flourish in renewed relationship with him. And now they are flourishing, despite all the pain and darkness of their backgrounds. And God's plan will always be to bring people back to the harmony, the openness, the friendship, the mutual submission, dispelling that disfigurement of one human ruling over another, bringing them back to a place of loyal and willing obedience, dispelling the sense of drudgery and the toil of work. God will bring people from back, back from that catastrophe because this is not the end, is it? This is not ultimately the hopelessness of the human condition that we have before us in Genesis 3. And there are hints of that, aren't there? In their nakedness, God prepares a cover for them to help them deal with their shame. God promises that the head of the snake will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. Yes, the snake will attack the heel of the offspring, but ultimately the snake's head will be crushed. The snake will not have the last word. Something will happen to silence the voice of the snake so that his lies and sowing of doubts can never quench the word of God. Because as Paul will tell us, just as there was, there was one man who brought sin into the world and by death, there was one man who by God's grace and gift comes by the grace of another man, Jesus Christ, and it overflows to many. For just as through the obedience of the one man that many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man that many will be made righteous. The Lord Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, shattering the work of Satan, breaking the serpent's bonds, crushing his head, in order that we can be welcomed back into the goodness of relationship with God. Do you need to come out of the hiding 
and come into the openness, the light of God's grace? Do you need to listen to his voice, that that voice that calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea? It calls us to come. Come to me and I will give you rest. The restoring, healing voice of Jesus. It's Newman who captures it in his hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and bud, which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. Let's pray. Lord, we look out on a world with so many broken relationships, so many hurting people, so many ways in which sin has impacted humanity, and it makes our hearts weep. It makes us sad beyond measure that such a good God should be treated with such lack of love and respect. And yet you haven't let us just be left in that mire. You come in the Lord Jesus to break the power of sin and death, to draw us into the flourishing relationship that you want for us in Christ. So we come afresh to you, out of our hiding, to discern your voice, and to respond, to come to you, Lord Jesus, the one who offers us rest. And we come now with thankfulness in his name. Amen.